Welcome to Rice is Rice, a podcast about the British East Asian experience where we talk about all things Asian and not. I'm Connor. I'm Akina. I'm Jem. I'm Billy. And I've heard all Asians can do Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I think you brought that up once um, before. I think I brought right? it up once. I did do, I didn't do Kung Fu, but I did do kickboxing. Um, I think that's pretty, that, that uh, stereotype kind of started in your generation, didn't it, Billy? With yes, like I, I think films. it was to do with all the um, the movies that were coming out. Yeah, everybody, at the time. everybody loved the late night kung fu films that were shown in the cinemas here, and it just became something that everyone thought that every Asian they saw could actually do <laughs> kung fu. But would that stop people like messing with no Asians? You see oh, it, thinking... it definitely did stop people messing with <laughs> Asians because I definitely didn't mess with no Asians because I weren't taking no risks. <laughs> But it's like a double-edged sword, almost, because, like, while there's that, it's, like, kind of a deterrent, almost. There's still some people that's like, oh, yeah, I can still take Oh, definitely, because, you know what, it it also, like you said, double-edged sword, it made people think, I would like to test out the skills I have once I'm Asian, which was a mistake in many, many, many situations that I saw, especially hanging out in the West End. Oh, loads of people was, like... I hate to be the Asian friend who you're with, like your white friend, and then if you someone comes to mess with you guys, he'll just push you forward, thinking that you'll defend them. Oh, listen, we, we had our, our Asian friend's name was Reggie. He just looked like he could do kung fu. <laughs> so, people, so no one, no one ever messed with him. So when we were with Reggie, no one would mess with us anyway because he just looked like he was a problem. <laughs> That's a cool perk. Well, shout out to Reggie then for I guess protecting you guys with just his looks. Could he actually, though, or couldn't he? Yeah, yeah Reggie could. Uh, he could. Okay. Yeah, he could. <laughs> today we're having rice served with Black Lives Matter and Parenthood. So today we have um, Billy on as our guest. And since he has a history more so with you, Connor. Do you want to give an introduction to who Billy is? Yeah. Um, Billy is my f- longtime mentor and friend, teacher in many things, and also born and bred Brixton Londoner. Born and bred. <laughs> and I will never leave this place. Never leave. No, uh, no amount of gentrification will kick you out of Brixton. Oh, no, no, no. Brixton is my spot. No gentrification <laughs> is removing me. I definitely want to talk about that because I've been seeing so much on social media about Brixton and what's happening over there. And since, like you said, you're born and bred Brixton, it'd be so cool to just chat about everything that's changed and yeah, is it, changing right now. It's definitely a big change that's been happening here. It's just unfortunate that a lot of people who lived in Brixton and would like to stay in Brixton don't have the the financial opportunity to actually stay here because with the um raising rents and the raising in all the things that that they sell here it's like people have to move out a lot of council housing estates is what brixton is built on so a Mm. lot of the people that lived in those housing estates have been moved out with promises that oh we'll move you somewhere temporarily move you back to brixton but once all the new blocks are have been rebuilt they they don't move you back so it's just the yeah. dilemma that we have to deal with. Um, I guess that kind of links to why we're here. Obviously, the world is in meltdown at the moment. Stuff is happening all over the place. And 
kind of Billy, you've got all this years of wisdom brought on. You've seen. Um, were you alive during the Bristol bus boycotts? Oh was yeah, yeah, when you yeah. Were a kid? Well, yeah, yeah. All so of you've those seen things. Brixton riots, seen, the bus boycotts, everything. Yeah, you've seen uh, years and years of what's happening now. This is just kind of the next wave. So yeah, yeah that's just to me. That, that's all that. this is. To me, it's just the it is just the next wave. And every time the wave comes, the wave gets a little bit bigger. You know what I mean? But the the, the problem is, in most cases, the wave has never been big enough to actually provide the ultimate change that you want. It brings small amounts of change, but we we need such a large change at one time it, it's never the wave is never big enough for that and i'm hoping that now with this generation that we have who who are really resilient i think that that this change can come this is the time when we can really push for it so i guess let's start at the beginning um so the prime minister kind of mentioned in the speech the other day that he thinks britain is one of the least racist places you can be uh so billy what do you think about that <laughs> that is the most laughable statement i have ever heard in my life because i've experienced racism from the time i was born in all my 54 years there's not a year you know other than the years when i was a baby and i don't remember but the years of remembrance there hasn't been a year that I haven't experienced racism in my life in this country. What's the earliest memory you have? Earliest memory of racism is most probably when I was about five or six. Someone racially, oh, really? yeah, someone race. I remember. I, I'll tell you why. The reason why I remember it is because it was one of the. It was most probably the. No, it was the first time. First time I um I'd gone on a bus, and I was with my dad mm. and my mum, and and uh, a gentleman. I see. Obviously, at that age, you don't know what racial abuse is. Yeah. yeah. But I knew that the gentleman said something derogatory to my mum. And, and my dad actually stepped up and hit the, hit the guy. Uh. And I remember that. And I remember there being this tussle and then my dad and my mum getting off the bus and taking me away. And it's only years later that when I asked my mum, I said, oh, mum, I got this, this memory of this tussle on a bus with a gentleman and that's when my mum explained to me that she was racially abused by a gentleman and my dad had to step in and deal with the guy wow five years old in that conversation you had with with your mum was that the start point where she maybe she started telling you about how the color of your skin could affect um people's actions towards you was that that kind of conversation yes. yeah definitely that was definitely the first conversation that brought to light to me the the differences between people of colour and white and, and white and white people. I didn't mm. think about it before. You know what I mean? You go to primary yeah, school, you have your friends of all different races, all different colours. You play, you know what I mean? You have arguments and then you make up, you break up. And it didn't make a difference to me at that, that time. But then once I got to like 10, 11, and my mum explained that to me, then it started to really make a difference in my life because you notice things that had happened to you maybe when you was yeah. eight or nine, and it's only that Where that moment you realise, yeah. oh yeah, what had, what had happened? You just thought, oh, it was an incident. You didn't pay. No, you thought, oh my gosh, now mm -hmm. I realise it was a racial incident that mm -hmm. happened to me. Mm -hmm. And how did that like make you feel at that age? Do you remember? It made me feel really bad because obviously, being that young, you had no colour mm -hmm. barriers. You have really you have lots of friends that are white at school, and sometimes even things like there were kids at school who wouldn't play with you and you didn't you didn't understand why they wouldn't play with you but now it made you realize oh 
I know why he wouldn't play with me. Because you see that kid and that kid would only play with all the other white kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a game and you'd try to bring that kid in. That kid wouldn't want to play with you. He'd just go and play. And it's let, then you, you come to that realisation, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. this is, you know what I mean? It, it is something that is really deeply ingrained in the society that we're living in. I mean, we kind of jumped straight into that conversation. It's such a packed conversation to have about the racist histories of the UK and our... our our personal dealings with it. But just to dial it back a little bit, how are you? Because I know <laughs> we didn't really start with that. How are you, Billy? I've not spoken to you in such a long time. And uh, like Connor says, the world is mad right now with George Floyd's murder sparking this whole movement again. It's not the first time it sparked, as you said. Yeah. Um, and then COVID-19, how have you been personally right now? Uh, do you know what? To tell, to tell the truth, I, I always see the good in every situation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Whatever bad happens in the world, there's always something good that can come from that scenario. Maybe this yeah. COVID-19 is a sign to us that the world needs to change. You know what I mean? And it's forcing that change because of how devastating a, 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 a disease it is. Because it's not actually... COVID-19 that is devastating It's people who have um, underlying health issues that are dying from mm-hmm. it mostly mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. most people who are quite healthy can survive it and but it is so widespread throughout the world there's no one of any colour or any race that it doesn't affect so when people see something that affects everyone they can't say oh well I'm going to sit on the fence in this one because it doesn't affect me it affects yeah. all of us so it shows that all of us have to change. We all have to be able to live together. And if we don't live together and don't work together in every scenario, then the world is never never going to be the place that it can be. We're not going to survive whatever comes in, in front of us because together you can, but when you're separate, you're very weak links in a chain. We need to be a strong chain, which means we need to be together. Yeah, definitely. It looks like this time is is for sure a time of like reflection and reckoning as well we have we have to come face to face with exactly what's wrong with how we've been doing things um which is i don't know if you guys feel it as well but which is why it feels like this time when the black lives matter movement has risen up again it feels different for some oh, reason, I don't know if that has to, something to do with the fact that we're during COVID-19 times. Oh, yeah, no, it definitely does. Because to me, what I've, what, how I've seen it is that life is full of distractions. There are so many distractions in life. COVID-19 has forced people to stay in one spot. Mm-hmm. Everyone has been mm-hmm. told, stay in your home. Don't m- manoeuvre yourself to any place. You can't work. You can't go out and play. All you can do is go and buy food and go home. People have been forced into leaving the distractions aside. So when something like what happened to George Floyd happened, it it resonates more to you because it's one of the only things your mind can focus on because all the distractions have been moved Mm. to the side. So for me, that's that's the reason. COVID-19 is... something that has removed all the distractions from us. We don't have any choice but to signify this thing is very, very serious. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not, because in America, this, how, how many times do we see these murders? 
We see them all the time. And then people yeah. are up in, they up in arms for such a short amount of time, then, it, then you forget about it. Because why you go back to your normal life? Oh, I've got to get these things done for work. I've got to get mm-hmm. my kids ready for this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. So all the distractions come into your life and you forget about that, that thing you, you saw that you were so aggrieved about. Now you don't have those distractions yeah. anymore. I completely agree because I think it, it, I was having this conversation with one of my friends and he was saying that he like doesn't know like why is it now that people are starting to care more when this is something that he's always faced his entire life and then when we were talking about it I know like with me personally I've just had so much more time now to really think deeply and address my own biases because even for me even though I've always viewed myself as being like not racist there are still stuff like even within the Asian culture that has been so ingrained in how I grew up and my way of thinking that I realized like oh you know i've been very very ignorant on that like for example i kind of the way i've always viewed racism was a a white versus all people of color and i kind of always classed as my experience being very similar to a black experience but like this time um being in lockdown i've really thought about it and i've realized like no that was a very ignorant way of thinking um because i've never felt any like any kind of threat um because of my skin color i never thought that i I'd be put in harm's way and the kind of yeah. the racism towards me is just completely, completely different to all my black friends. And so once I realised that, I just thought, mm-hmm. oh, that that I feel awful for never having really thought about it beforehand. And it was only now that because we've been in lockdown that it's forced me to really think into it. Yeah, but, but the system that we're living in has been built that mm-hmm. way. It doesn't want you to understand the situation that, black people are going through because it doesn't want you to feel um, empathy for them Mm because that way the more people that get together the system is not going to be able to continue the the abuse that it's been dealing out to people of colour the more of us together the stronger we become so it wants us to be separated so it wants you to have biases towards us it wants you you know what I mean to be separated but this COVID-19 has allowed us to come together more because as you say it's given you more time to reflect and realise oh I I didn't look at it from that perspective because I was being distracted by all these other things and now these distractions are gone what people were telling me is how things really are I definitely relate to that and to you Gem when you're bogged down with all your responsibilities it's so easy to be like oh, that's awful, but I have to concentrate on this other stuff to do with my life. Um, And now we don't have that with COVID-19. But also with COVID-19, I've been turning around this like debate in my head because obviously there's all the protests happening um, throughout London as well as in the States. And you want to be active in supporting the Black Lives Movement. But at the same time, I'm so hugely aware that I'm reading COVID-19 disproportionately affects black yeah. communities more than more than white communities because race and class is tied, right? Definitely. Um, and so I'm like, if I join these protests, am I, am I devastating black lives by trying to support them? And I've been just... Because the, the protests are still happening, yeah. albeit like less intense now, um, but they're still going. And I'm still turning that debate over in my head. Does participating mean that I'm putting others in risk? Yeah, I, See, I think in, in, in situations like this, you have to 
Weigh up, weigh up all that is involved in the situation and make the choice that is best for yourself. Because sometimes mm. you say to yourself, I'm not going to the protest, so I don't feel like I'm supporting the cause, you know. But if, if what you've read and what you've seen has made you change in even the slightest in the way that you think about what you've seen, then you are supporting the cause whether you go out or you don't mm-hmm. go out, because now you're going to treat people differently, you're going to act differently. And when you have conversations with people, your sentiments within that conversation are going to be totally different now. It's not going to be the, it's not going to be the same yeah, as it yeah. was before. A lot of the biases you, you may have, have lost now just because your understanding is totally different now. There are those people who can afford to go out to those marches. Those marches are going to happen regardless. There are going to be people that are going out of this. So if you don't go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you shouldn't feel like that you're not supporting the cause because if you have changed in, in any way in the slightest, then you are supporting the cause. I don't want to go to no march. Yeah. I want to go to a march, but the reason why I can't go to a march is because I have a three and a half year old daughter. I can't put her at risk by going yeah. out to a march and you know systematically maybe catching COVID-19 and then giving it to my daughter. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I can't go there, but I know I know that I'm supporting this cause in my heart and in any way that I can. We have social media. So yeah. if you post on social media, you're supporting the cause. You know what I mean? If you as a person have changed in the slightest, you're supporting the cause. So it doesn't matter. Everybody has a part to play and every part is as important as the other. Yeah, d- definitely protecting those around you is important. And because we were having the conversation that in our neighborhood, there's so many black aunties and uncles walking around, going to the market. And obviously we have to pick up our food too. And they don't really regard the whole social distancing thing. No, they thing. don't. So they don't. I find myself walking around my neighborhood trying to run away from aunties and uncles yeah. and be like, keep safe. Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, if I go to the march, I come back to my neighborhood and put these aunties and uncles at risk. Let's not do that. Well, my question, my thing was basically, um, like recently uh, here in Bristol, there was a whole thing during a protest. They pulled down the statue mm-hmm. of a slaver, like, like a very like Bristolian figure who built so many buildings and whatever, but at the yeah. same time built it through s- slave money, yeah. basically. Um, and then that's brought up the debate of the like academic curriculum should teach the atrocities of empire and all that stuff. Um, I was just wondering, like, from the 70s to now, do you see... Because your kids, you have kids our age, and you also Naya, who's going to go into school soon? In a couple of years, She's, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years. So have you seen any, like, differences between the 70s, 2000s, and now in terms of teaching, like, the bad things the British Empire has done and all the atrocities or... Is it pretty much just been the same? It's pretty much been the same. There, 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 there hasn't been any difference. The curriculum has been the curriculum ever since the 70s till, till now. I haven't seen... I've got friends who are teachers. The curriculum hasn't changed. They adjust minor things here and there because they have to appease certain audiences. You know, they have to make certain people happy. So there's things that they will put in there, but the curriculum basically hasn't changed. If you're going to teach a subject like... History. Mm-hmm. History should include everybody's history. Chinese, Indian, white, black. It doesn't matter where you're from, Europe, from Africa. If you're going to teach the subject history, teach history. 
if you're only going to teach European history, call it European history. Don't call the subject history. Because if it's history, history includes every single one of us, mm. which means you should teach everyone about each other. You can't have a school that's filled with a, a, a multi, multicultural um a mass of students and you don't teach them all about each other. Yeah. You teach about one type of student. It doesn't make it, it you know what I mean? One is unfair, two it doesn't make sense. I agree and I think as well like if from like I studied history throughout school and um it was like definitely my favorite subject and I I've been kind of in the standpoint that I've always because I'm interested in it I'll do extra reading outside of it but that was the only way that I actually got to know the parts of history that was never taught in school because I think what they teach us in school is what show, shows Britain as being this amazing country and, and look what we've done. And, uh, you know, it, it shows our achievements more than it shows the bad things that we've done. And I wouldn't have known anything had I not done extra reading. And I think that kind of, again, it, it puts it into like systematic racism that we grow up as kids thinking like, oh, England is this amazing, like not a racist place at all because we've only ever seen it being oh, the good old great Britain. Um, And even say like with, um, because I think there's been talks of, I can't remember, has someone like vandalised the uh, Winston Churchill um, statue? Yeah. Yeah. So that people are getting angry because I guess people who've only really known his side that he helped us through the war, but haven't known. Exactly. Like, the racism that he held himself and all the other bad things he'd done, which not ever, we don't get taught that at school at all, at all. And I think that is a real failure within the UK and within like every country in the world. Cause I think every country does that, that they only really show the good parts. That's the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it just adds to that lack of education, more ignorance. And if we don't get rid of that, then unfortunately I, I think that kids are going to grow up every generation of kids are going to grow up only knowing one side of the story and it's up to almost the parents and and the people around you to educate you um but that's why i think education really needs to change in that point oh education definitely needs to change because for me education is one of the most important factors you know what i mean in the world for all of us to learn about everything that this world has mm-hmm. to offer and the people that are in this world now if you don't if you educate them in a biased way then obviously you're you're not giving them the best footing to navigate the world on because they're going to go somewhere and believe something about it and then find out that what you've told them is not true because they've actually seen it with their own eyes and ears. This is what happened to me through what I was taught at school. And then when I actually went to certain countries, I was like, this is nothing like what I learned in history about the about these people their culture how they conduct themselves how they see us they'll tell you pe- that people are your en- like they'll basically teach you people are your enemies and they hate mm. you until you go there and you think how is that possible because every person i've met has been the nicest kindest person you know what i mean mm-hmm. but i was told that that's the total opposite of these people so yeah. when you when when the world is being guided by a certain amount a certain type of, of, of person, a certain way, it, it, all of that needs to go. Everything, everything needs to change. Education is maybe the biggest thing because you go, you go to, to school, you go to university and all they're doing is programming you to be part of mm-hmm. the system they want you to be part of. They don't want you to really be free. They don't want you to have a free mind to choose the things that you want to do. You know what I mean? They don't want to. You, you're supposed to teach children by giving them everything on the board and saying to them, this is, this is everything on the board. You choose what you want to do with what information you have. 
But they pick and choose what information they want us to have, what they want us to know, which shapes the way you feel about things, shapes the way you think about things and shapes the way you act as a person. For sure. I remember definitely loving history the same way as you, Jam. But now I just have such beef with the fact that we had to learn all of Henry VIII's wives' names rather than everything that the British Empire devastated in other countries. Um, And it's only now in my early 20s I'm learning about exactly how they touched Mm -hmm. other people's lives in the worst kind of way. And it's kind of... Not now that I'm learning about it and talking to others about it who maybe haven't sought out that information, it's really difficult because like you said, it's all about people thinking Great Britain is is great place. We've never done anything wrong. It's not as racist as America because you know, we learn about the slave trade but only about America. Um I think through year seven, we learned about the slave trade mm-hmm. and how Britain was involved, but only by transporting slaves. Only recently have I learned that the British owned slaves, but not in this In land. their colonies, yeah. So it's like... In their colonies. Them their trying colonies. to wash their yeah. hands Jamaica off the whole and, thing. So yeah. so it doesn't look bad on them. Oh, you had slaves. So you, you, you put them in a place where nobody can see them. So people look at you in a good light. Where you were, you were just as bad as everyone else. Yeah, it's like the original offshore, yeah. offshore account tax it's like free a, haven. Exactly, it's like having an offshore account, not paying your taxes. You put that money in there, and no one can touch you. That's very interesting what you said about um, having, like, being taught certain points of view. Because obviously, um, in school, when we're taught about any, any time we talk about the world, like geography or whatever, especially places like, as for example, Africa. Because Billy, you're Ghanaian. Yeah, when <laughs> Us in school were taught about countries in Africa. They would always give the same pictures of, you know, people who have, like, scraps yeah. of clothes and living in, like, really poorly built houses and stuff. But they never show... It was I think it was, Billy, you, it was you who showed me pictures when you went back to Ghana and other places that there's massive cities and there's, yeah. like, crazy yeah. infrastructure and economy I mean, and everything. I mean, I mean, until my parents took me back to Africa... And I think it was when I was 16 or something, me and my brothers, the first time we went back there, I thought that Africa was that place. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That was like a desert. There was no cities. It was just people in villages. I believe that. And and I'm African. You know what I mean? And I believe that. Why? Because every year I used to see all of these charities putting all these things on TV and every year they'd have a big charity event that, yeah, we're feeding the Africans. and So I actually thought my home was like that. And when me and my brother first went there, when I think, yeah, I was 15, I was like, this is nothing like what they said. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. That is wild. That, that is actually crazy. And I, I, I know I was the exact same as you, Connor. Like I, I genuinely thought that Africa was just this, impoverished con- like country um, continent that's all we, yeah, we ever seen in school and, and all the photos were all exactly the same and it wasn't until like one of, one of my best Comment friends um, would say like oh I'm going home to Nigeria and then she'd t- show me photos and I'd be like oh my god th- there's like real big houses and it's like proper properly built up and why have I only ever been shown images of huts and like villages like and, and that's that like yeah. if I hadn't had a friend who'd shown me photos I probably would have gotten a lot older before actually realizing 
that it wasn't all like that. I think the media and school yeah, and, it's like... and the whole system just feeds us this this one image, this one image, and we're not educated enough at a young age to know otherwise. It's pretty much equal to like if someone thought Abu Dhabi was mm-hmm. just all desert and like guys like goat farmers and stuff and they showed an actual picture of Abu Dhabi as it is now. That's pretty much the difference it is for most African countries and cities. Yeah, definitely. Which is... Definitely. But Africa is a beautiful place, man. And it's like, it's not only beautiful, it is so enriched. There is so, so much... Uh, for a country that they make look like it's the poorest country on the planet, it is the richest country on the planet. If it wasn't, we're living in 2020. Why are corporations still there digging up the gold and the diamonds and the minerals and all the things you can get in Africa? Why are they still there? The abundance of food that they have in Africa. I know I, I know people who are tomato farmers and because of the way that... that um, Europe has desecrated the tomato industry in Africa. These tomato farmers who grow tomatoes in Africa have to leave their home and their families to go and work in European farms because they make more money there than selling their own tomatoes that they grow in their own farms at home. That's how bonkers it is. Yeah, it's the it's the like post 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 effects of colonial colonialism, and it's just. It's really sad to see. Not, not everyone wants to like brush over. Like it's happened so many years ago. It started so many years ago, but it's still happening. It's now still happening right everything. now. It's still happening right now. People, people have to realize we still live in a colonial, enslaved society. Mm. They've just yeah. decided to take the chains off of your your hands and your feet, and now they put the chains on your mind. That's all it mm. is. That's a really interesting way to put it. So. We go from we go from Ghana to Brixton. Um, in in the seventies and eighties, when you were growing up and hanging about, did you see like when the police? Because I've heard stories that back in the day, the police were a bit more like they would jump you, put you in a van, beat you up, and throw you out on the street type stuff, which is like kind of what's happening in states still right, right now. now. Yeah, I, I, and I, that's that's what they used to use as an example to say like Britain's gotten better because we used to do this, but. We don't anymore. Yeah, that is the example that they use. And, and I'm a victim of, of that. Many times when I used to come home from school, we used to have what they call the SPG van. It was the van that the black youth feared the most. Because when you see mm-hmm. the SPG van, you know someone is about to get snatched up, put in the back of that van, get the crap beaten out of them, and then thrown out of that van. God. They'll question you, they'll interrogate you, they'll ask you, have you got weed? Have you stolen anything? It's, it's happened to me several times. I couldn't go home mm. and tell my mum or my dad that I had just been snatched up by an SPG van. They punched me. They kicked me. They turned out my school bag. They threw me out on the floor because my parents in those times would have said to me, what did you do mm. wrong? That was the mm. mentality. You know what I mean? The thing was our parents were put in such a position that they couldn't even believe their own children. If they got arrested, you think, nah, you must have done something wrong. They didn't realise it was just the same, the same way you, would ra- you were racially abused because of the colour of your skin. This is what they're now doing to your children because of the colour of our skin. And the SPG were most violent. They, they didn't mess around. What, what are they? Are they like a special unit? Yeah, they're like, you, you see today, you see the big police vans, 
that they have with like 12 or 14 police police yeah. people in there. Hmm. It, right, mm-hmm. SPG vans are what they'd bring out if there were riots. Oh, okay. But back in those days, what they would have is like, nowadays, they only bring the, the van police out when there's something mm-hmm. big happens. In those days, you would have one or two vans just riding around to keep order. So every so often, they'd snatch up a, 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 a black person, beat them up a little bit, and then throw them back out on the street. And there's nothing you could do. Wow. I, I had no um, idea. That's that. a crazy way to grow up. So Why do you I, think your parents were like kind of not pointing to the system but more at you because the system made our parents believe that the police were the highest Mm -hmm. authority so you just had to respect them most black Mm. you just have to respect them so most um africans and afro-caribbeans just thought that they're the highest authority and we have to respect them so if anything is said about our children our children must have done it Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So they believe them over their believe rather than believe their own kids. So a lot of a lot of kids wouldn't say to their parents these things happen to them because they were scared. You know what I mean? They were scared. Our parents were scared of the of the police. It just they just had you know what I mean? Fear about them. Don't the the one thing black parents always used to tell their kids: whatever you do, don't bring the police to my door. It must have done things to young people growing up in that way. Did you or your friends face distrust or internalization of of these things? It definitely affects you mentally. When you're getting that type of physical abuse from people that you think are an authority, people that are supposed to be respected in the community... It affects you, not just physically, but it affects you very seriously mentally. Since the days of when I was abused by those SPG in those SPG vans, I have had a hatred Mm -hmm. for police. Good, bad. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't care whether a policeman is good, bad, or indifferent. I hate all of them. Up to this Mm -hmm. day, I have a hatred for police, and it is systematically because of what happened to me—the abuse that was met out to me as a young child because I knew that were things that happened to me were for no reason. Every mm. time I, I had been abused by them, I was walking home from school in my school uniform. There was no reason for me, you know what I mean? I go from school straight to home because when my mum says, when, when you're a black person and your parents say to you, when you leave school, you go straight home. That's mm. what you do. You know what I mean? You had that kind of fear about your parents. That's what you do. So when Mm -hmm. you're stopped by the police, not only are you scared that you're stopped by the police, you can't tell your parents because of the fear that I just got beat up by the police. If I tell my parents, that means another beating. Mm. Yeah. So I know so many friends who ended up becoming institutional criminals because of the treatment that they were, that was met out to them when they were younger. They just became they criminals. Of, the police kind of made criminals yeah. of many like black youths. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because it was like, if that's how you're going to treat me, if you yeah. think I'm going to be a criminal, then that's what I'm going to go and do. I'm going to do them yeah. criminal acts. Because if I'm going to get the punishment for it, I might as well do the actual crime. Yeah. See, this is the um, this is the difficult conversation that I try to have with my parents who um, are roughly around the same, same age as you, Billy but haven't had the same experiences as you being Filipino and immigrating here in their late 20s. They're 
kind of part of the whole model minority of Asians and they're taught be quiet don't be involved in any drama yeah. In, yeah. in any chaos and you'll be fine and you'll have a good life here um, because he has that understanding and that relationship with the authorities I find it really difficult to explain to him why people are so angry now and why his experience doesn't necessarily mirror the black experience Um in this country because he says things like why can't they just follow the rules why can't they just yeah um why why are they looting and, and things like that in the states because they yeah, live what, in the yeah, states what would now. you say to that like because you must have heard this over the years like why don't black people just you know keep their head down and follow the rules exactly why? how do i explain this my, to my dad yeah my, my, see my, my dad had the exact same mindset and it's a mindset that many 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 of the your parents' generation and many of even my generation, the way we grew up, many of them have that same. It was, as you said, it was my experiences in life that changed my mindset to, uh, no, I'm not going to sit down and shut up and just deal with the treatment that and the abuse that you're going to give me. If you're going to abuse me, then I'm going to fight that abuse with everything that I I have in my being. I'm not going to allow you to treat me that way. And so mm -hmm. the young the gen, a lot of people from my generation rebelled in that way. So they would the time when we had like the Brixton the Brixton riots, it was a sign of one of the biggest rebe rebellions. People were not going to accept the treatment that was given out by the metropolitan police anymore. The youth said enough is enough. And it gets to that point where there are, you have to have those people that are willing to put their physical bodies on the line, not just their mental state on the line, to change the way things happen. Because after we had those bricks and riots, the SPG vans got dismantled. They disbanded them. Mm -hmm. if, you don't, if you don't get to the point where... You say to yourself, the only way we can speak to those in authority is in the same language they're speaking to us. If that language you are speaking to us is violence, then that is the only way we're going to get through to you is through violent protests. And that's what Brixton riots was. It wasn't mm -hmm. just that they killed Cherry Groves, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They'd been doing abusing black people and, and a few black people had been murdered. And, and black people wanted to get to the point of that uproar, but it, it, it was an uprising that built slowly. And it got to the point where they killed Cherry Gross and people was like, enough is enough, we're done. That's it. We're at the mm. same point now. This is what George, yep. George Floyd is, the same thing. People have had enough. They're like, you know what? If you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me while I'm standing up. I'd rather die on my feet then live on my knees. It's not going to happen no more. So how do we have these conversations with people who don't necessarily can wrap their minds around that? Because there's my there's my dad. I don't know if you've had conversations with people that don't necessarily believe in, in the struggle. Um, and there's people I work with, um, white British people of a certain age um, that have just been blind to all of it. It's been a big question in my mind. What is the right way to talk to them about it? There, I don't think there is a right way or wrong way to talk to them. I think that 
with people like that, they've been systematically brainwashed and guided in for such a long time that change for them is 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 almost impossible. It's too difficult for them. But what you what you must do is is keep talking to them and showing them but not in you you must never argue with them about a situation mm. but you must explain to them and show them why certain things are wrong why if this situation happened you have to explain to them like look this is what this person did this is how they treated them you and yourself know that that's wrong mm. you sh- people shouldn't be treated that way for this particular crime that they've committed as we've seen people in america have gone into churches killed many people what for one for one example killed how many it was 25 people and they took him to they took him to burger king they arrested him and took him to yeah. burger king but a black person can sit down in their car at a traffic stop the policeman will get out and just shoot them mm-hmm. you 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 yeah. just you just have to have that conversation with them because there is no right or wrong way to talk to them and and the truth of the matter is when they've been ingrained with this type of information for so long, then mind is never going to change. But you yeah, must have... Yeah, find so... But, but, but it, 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 it feels like it's infuriating, but you have to have mm-hmm. those conversations with them because sometimes what happens with people, the more, the more you explain to them, even though outwardly they might not say it, inwardly they actually accept that what you're saying is the truth. And for people of my parents' generation, it's very hard for them to say, oh, you're, you, uh, now I understand, you're right and I'm wrong. They will never yeah. admit that. Mm. You know what I mean? You're, you're a child. How can, how can my child teach me something about the world? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Those generations don't, uh, will never accept that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I think it's most probably from my generation downwards is where parents have started to realise to themselves that I can learn more from my kids than any school, college or university can ever teach me. I'm only the person I am today is because of my three kids. I learned so much from having to struggle from being a single parent to bring up my, my, my children that it is, it's changed my view of the world. It's changed my view of people. It's changed my view on many, many things. It's changed my approach on parenting. It's changed lots of things because we, we, all we are are products of, of our environment. Now, if our environment is not teaching us the right thing or guiding us the right way, it's not always our fault that we believe yeah. in the wrong thing or act in the wrong way. So once you re- come to that realisation, you within yourself have to find a methodology of changing all of that. That's what I had to do. I had to soul search in myself. How do I change all of these things? Because yes, I know society has brainwashed me. I, the first step is to admit it. I'm brainwashed. The same as everyone mm-hmm. else. You know, I look at white people a certain way. I look at black people a certain way and I'm black. How can I look at a white person and think they're better than a black person? I used to think like that. Mm-hmm, now I yeah. know no one is better than anyone else. But I used to believe that in myself, even though I might not have openly admitted it. In my subconscious, I knew that's how I felt because I always saw all these glamorous looking white girls on, on um, the TV, magazines or whatever. And then I'd see nothing about how beautiful black women were. So when I'd see a black woman, I wouldn't think she was beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, it was just... there's a there's a joke, isn't it, about yeah. like especially dark skinned women who like they're like ugly or whatever or like un undesirable. Yeah. Even you like even me? in the black community. So yeah. so we, we have to find ways to, to look in ourselves and assess ourselves. And it's one of those processes that goes on every day of your life. You can become better. I mean, your job today is only the only one job you have today is to be better than you was yesterday. That's it. And it's then tomorrow, your job is your it. job is to be better than you was today. That's all. If you can do that, you'll be the best person you can be. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up parenthood. I love whenever you come around to eat dinner with us. I love talking to you about parenthood because it's just a view that me and Connor never get to hear about so directly because it's different hearing it from you. Yeah. So I wanted to ask how how you've changed you say you have three children and your oldest is how old 29 is our age right yeah 29 uh, no kamar's 29 my that. daughter's the same age is she's she? 25 oh yeah kamar's 29 amara's uh, amara's 25 i haven't seen him in a while <laughs> <laughs> and you have your youngest naya have you noticed any changes in yourself as you've gotten better and as you've changed your own mindset in how you've parented um, your oldest and and your youngest. Yeah, I, I, it, it, the experience of parenting from my my, um, my oldest to my youngest is totally two ends of a different spectrum. Because when I had my uh, my first child, I was twenty five years old, so I didn't know nothing about the world. But in your twenties, you think you know everything. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I knew I thought I knew everything about everything. I didn't have anything to learn. You know, when my parents would tell me things, I'd be like, "Yeah, you're old. You don't know nothing. You can tell me this, but I know I know what is what." But when yeah. I had when I had my son, and I had to go through moving in with his mum, I thought to myself, "Right, I've got to make a, a go of it." You know, I, it was a time when I just started to get a lot of DJ work and my career was just taking off. But because of my son, I was like, I need I need income that's going to be regular. So I got myself a day job at the same time as doing the DJing. I got a flat and moved in with his mum. I said, this is this. I have to take responsibility. A lot of people don't take responsibility for mm. their position in life, you know, but I'm one of those people that have learned that anything that happens in life to you, the only person you can look at is yourself because anyone else who's involved in that, that situation with you, like talking about my son, his mother, I can't control her choices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can only control the way I, my choice, the, the, the things I choose and the things I do. So things that are out of your control, you should leave them alone. Don't try to, to control things you can't control. I knew I could control what, myself. So I took upon myself the choice to, to get a flat, move in with his mum and try and make it work. So first two years we lived together, then it got too stressful. We obviously <laughs> wanted to separate as a couple. And so I said to myself, all right, the best thing is if my son lives with me. I have my, my parents I can fall back on. I, I have this flat, I have the job. So. She agreed, she agreed with all of that. Being that single parent made me look at other single mothers. Because when you're young, there's a stereotype that all single mothers are women that are no good. They're single, they're mm. single parents because mm -hmm. they're no good women. They're good for one thing kind of thing. And 
when I became a single parent, I realised that that's totally not true. They're, si- they're single because they're, whatever, whatever they're sing- the reason they're single is, is of no significance. What they do as a parent to their child is what's important. Because I'm from an African um, background, I'm a very... I'm from a, a, a background that is very strict and stern. There are no great areas, mm. you know? I used <laughs> to get beaten a lot if I misbehaved. Sometimes I would do things... Like, if my dad said, no, you're not going out, but there's a rave I wanted to go to, I'd be like, the beating is worth it. I'm going. <laughs> I always said to myself, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like my dad when, when I have my kids. So when I had my son and I started bringing him up, without even realising it, your dad. who was I? <laughs> I was my dad. But you don't, no. you don't, you don't realise that's yeah. who you are. Because... As children, our physical makeup is of our two parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were always going to have similarities, parts of us that act like our mum and parts of us that act like our dad, no matter what we do, no matter how we think, no matter how much we try to fight it. And for me, it was when I realised I became my dad that I tried to change. So for mm-hmm. years, you know, me and my son would fight you know what I mean? They're, they're doing madness, but you're, you don't understand why they're doing this madness. Children, all they want is attention, whatever that attention may be and for whatever reason it may be. They're, they're just like, a child is just like a gigantic hard drive. Everything you, you, you put onto that hard drive is what it knows. So if yeah. you put good things onto that hard drive, that's all it's going to know. If you abuse that hard drive, that's all it's going to know. So you've got to understand mm-hmm. how to what you're going to input onto that hard drive. Mm-hmm. And because my son was the... T- he, poor boy ended up as the test case. <laughs> so he had, to go, he had to go through all the rough times, all the hard times. Now, when he was 17, 18 is when our relationship started to get better. Because that's when, like, I think it was like, he was 15, I sent him to live with my sister. He went to live in Italy for two years with my sister. That's when I started to change, you know, not seeing him as much it made me mm. reflect a lot more on what I had done how I'd brought him up that's when our relationship started to change that's when I'd real, I realised I needed to make a lot of changes in my life and I had my daughter which is who's five years younger than my son so I had him I was dealing with him and then my daughter came along me and his me and her mum worked together so that's another relationship type of relationship different to the one I'm dealing with that I'm trying to deal with now Mm -hmm. my situation with his mother was like she didn't let me see my daughter as Mm -hmm. much so I didn't have to deal with her as much as I did and our relationship was different because when I did see her I was less stressed I was happier to see her because I don't Mm -hmm. see her that often because of the the situation between um my um her mom and me so I always used to say to myself, all right, you just got to just take it for what it is. You don't have any control over his mum, over, sorry, over, over her mum. Leave her to be herself. You only control what you control. So you need to make sure your relationship with your daughter is better than with your son. So that's what happened. My relationship with my daughter became way better than my relationship with my son. So by the time my son was 18 and my daughter was like 12, my daughter and me had a really good relationship. And it made me readjust the relationship with my son and start to talk Mm. to him about things that 
my parents wouldn't talk to me about sex, drugs, you know, contraception, mm-hmm. all the kind of things that my parents would never talk to me about. I started talking to my son about those things because I'd learned that myself, um, that if I didn't teach him, he'd go out and he learn it from someone else. And these are things that you should learn from your parents. You shouldn't learn from somebody else. So mm-hmm. I started to implement that also with my parenting with my daughter. 12 years old, I started to talk to her about the same things. And I never made it that, oh, we have to have a talk type mm-hmm. of nonsense. I would just bring <laughs> yeah. I, I would just bring things up in conversation out mm-hmm. of the blue. So I'd go, I might be talking to my daughter, then I'd, I might go into uh, a conversation to her yeah. about her period. And then I'd just go into us talking about what we're having for dinner. So it would come in yeah. and out of the conversation and she, it, it wouldn't yeah. feel taboo yeah. to her. Yeah. So normalizing really it. Really. Yeah. So she didn't, she, she, she never felt embarrassed about it. And so I That's thought, I, I, and so I realized to myself, this, this, these are the, the, the roads that you have to navigate to be a parent, to be a parent. You have to change in totally. And it's the hardest thing in the world especially if you're someone in your 30s or yeah. your 40s, you know, or your 50s, and you have to become a totally different person because now that person, that, that, that child you've brought into the world is reliant on you for everything. Everything. Yeah. If you give them the wrong information, you put the wrong information, you put corrupt information onto that hard drive, you are responsible for what happens. So if your child becomes bonkers and you look at how you brought them up and you realise yourself, hmm, okay. You have to be adult enough to say, I'm responsible. So if I'm responsible, I'm the one who can fix it. I was responsible for the abuse that my son took when I used to smack him if he did something wrong. When I did, you know what I mean? When I shouted the hell out of him and made him cry and all those type of things. My daughter never got those things. I remember one time my son was naughty and my, son, my daughter must have been about six and I, oh, I gave it to him. I was, shout, I was shouting. I didn't want to beat him so I was shouting. I was so angry. And then my daughter did, uh, um, later on that day, my daughter, um, I asked her to do something and she didn't do it. And I was like, Amara. And she came, came running in and she goes, oh, daddy, daddy, I'm going to do it now. I, I, I don't want to get in trouble like Kamar did. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it made me feel so bad that, you know what I mean? That she yeah. felt traumatized by me shouting at my son. She hadn't got in trouble, but she yeah. felt trauma because I shouted at my son, mm. you know? And even as my son as an adult, all the things I've done for him, I done uh, um, done to him when he was a kid. We've talked about all of them. I've apologized for all the behavior and things. Parents don't do yeah. that. Me and my son have got a, a, a relationship now where we're we're like we're like older brother and younger brother. He will tell me everything and anything. <laughs> we talk about the girls he's with. He t- he'll tell me about oh I went to this club. These men were doing these drugs or whatever. He doesn't do any. He smokes weed. That's all he does. He smokes weed. He might have a beer or two, but he'll say yeah these men were doing these drugs, trying to encourage me. I said no, nope, I don't do all of that. I'm not into none of them things. My dad's not into those things. I'm not into them things. He's like when I look at him now, he's like a mirror image of myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he would have turned out like if 
I never changed and I never re reconciled the pain that I'd brought him. When you're a child, that pain that your parents bring to you, you will harbour for the rest of your life. And I know that because of things my parents have done to me that I have mm. harboured to this day. That I know yeah. that yeah. only because I've changed, I've been able to forgive them and just let it go. It, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is. They were brought up in a generation that they didn't have that mindset of understanding. So it's not their fault. I shouldn't blame them. I was blaming them before. I shouldn't blame them. You know what I mean? Forgive them for that and, and be a better parent yourself because then that, that, will, that, will, that was what will make up for it if you become a better parent. And then if you're that type of parent to your kids, then your kids will be better parents to their kids. So those, those are the experiences that I've had. And so with my youngest now, Naya, it's like, this is like being, it's kind of like being on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I, made all, I made all the mistakes with the others, you know? And so now I'm just like, oh, I know all the ins and outs. I know all the tricks. I know all the things that you're going to try and say to me and what you're going to do. So now it's like, oh, this is easy. This is easy. Yeah. The only thing is at my age, it's tiring as hell. <laughs> you don't get no sleep. Oh my goodness. They get up 6.30 in the morning, slap in your face, wake up daddy. No, it's not, it's not time yet. It's not light outside. I'm awake now, daddy. Let's go. Breakfast time. Let's go. And I'm just like, oh my God. You just got to get up and go. When they're ready to go, you got to get up and go. And for me, it's been such a pleasure because she brings more joy in, in, into my life than anything in the world mm -hmm. and so it, it kind of made me understand why you do you may have certain favoritisms with children my favoritism with my youngest is not because i love her more than any of my kids my favoritism with her is the fact that i've been through all the craziness with my other two and so mm -hmm. with her it's easy i can enjoy mm -hmm. all the things that happen that's where my favoritism lies with her not because oh she's better at this or better than that. And now I've realised you have to, as a parent, stop trying to make children what you want them to be. And, and you have to stop trying to make your children look for, um, you have to, you have to stop, trying, um, stop trying to make your children want approval from you as a parent. Mm -hmm. You as a parent, your job is to give your child all the tools from the tool shed and then say to them, here's all the tools, you go and do whatever you want to go and do with them. Yeah, that's really touched me. <laughs> I'm like literally like tearing up. <laughs> I can like, see oh. just from Jeb's face, yeah. Because, <laughs> oh my God, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk because I'm like crying. <laughs> I don't cry because they're going to make me cry and then Connor will cry and then that'll be it, man. The podcast will be over. <laughs> I think it is just like a very, it, it's really refreshing for me to see like your way of thinking in terms of parenthood because I know like oh my god oh, this, this is like the first time I've ever cried in a podcast episode but um I think my <laughs> relationship with my parents has still been very like up and down and to be able to see like the way you've learned throughout your experiences with your children and how like you're learning from them just as much is something that I and I, I don't know I quite like hearing because I think the the difficult thing with my relationship with my parents is that it's still very much that you know the parent is always right and just listen to us no matter yeah. what that kind of thing and my that 
my relationship with them has really improved over the years and I think they are get I'm the oldest so I think I'm I'm like your oldest kind of thing like the experimentation child and they're still trying to find their way to go yeah, and how to navigate yeah, yeah. um and like it's definitely hugely improved from when I was like a teenager to where I am now but it's still like that ongoing process yeah. and even now with with everything that's been going on on with BLM and having conversations with my parents particularly my dad has been really difficult around it because of that mindset of being like I'm your dad I know more than you no matter what you say that kind of thing mm. and I know it's nothing I can't even like really get angry or blame him because it, it as we've discussed previously like it's all systematic and and the society he grew up in and like Philippines their, their politics and their way of thinking society everything um has yeah. made him the person who he is so I'm not at all angry with him I'm more angry with like the society the same way as I'm angry at the society here and the way I've grown up and have been educated um but yeah you're kind of the way you spoke through about your experience with parenthood yeah that just really touched me I was just like oh. um so thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah this is exactly why I love talking to Billy about it because it gives me such a different perspective about my own parents Jim and I completely relate to what you're feeling now because it's <laughs> it's kind of like what I felt talking to Billy in yeah. one of our dinner parties it just gave me so much perspective <laughs> Yeah, I mean, self-reflection is the is the hardest thing is the hardest thing in the world. You know, people always say to you that going to war is a very difficult, but the hardest war anyone can fight is the war of yourself, because to mm -hmm. to change yourself is the hardest thing anyone can do. To accept that you're wrong, and and someone else may have a way of doing things that's better than what you know. Is, is is so difficult, yeah. you know. That's but the worst. It, it, yeah. it, it's the worst. But if you can do it, it makes you the best, the best you can be. And like I said, all you, your job is only to be better than you were yesterday. That's it. Nothing, nothing more. Because you can't change the world any other way. That's how you change the world. You change the world by not by changing other people, but by changing yourself. That's how you change the world. People always have this thing as, no, I've got to convince this person and convince that person. Half the time, when you're trying to convince someone, what you're doing is driving them away. Mm -hmm. If you change you and then people see a better you, then they end up just following that better you without even realising mm -hmm. they're following that better you. Well, Billy, it's always wonderful to <laughs> talk to you. Um, and I'm always kind of struck in this whole like reflective uh, mindset after our conversations thank you for for coming on that, that was the pleasure really, was all mine um, amazing and, and the way you have such a way with words the way you, you you kind of put things into perspective um i thought it was very enlightening so thank you so much oh i think yeah. i think all three thank of you. you it's 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 a pleasure for me it's a pleasure to talk to young the young generation like you guys because i may live in this world but you guys are the ones who are going to shape the world you you mm. guys are sh who are what shape the, the the future of this place not me my time came mm. my time's gone i've done my share <laughs> you know so when i see that there are three people like you guys who really want to make a difference in the world it, those are the things that make me happy those are things that really make me happy when i see like <laughs> three intelligent young people who want to make the world a better place, not just for themselves, but for everybody. Everybody, because in my experiences, I've met so many selfish people in the world and there are an abundance of them. You know, So when I find 
three youngsters with a mindset like you guys, you you, you guys don't realize how happy it makes me. It makes me happy. <laughs> You're gonna make Jim yeah, cry again. Like yeah. Oh no no no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, guys. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Rice is Rice Pod, on Twitter at Rice is Rice underscore pod, on YouTube, Rice is Rice, and every Wednesday on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and any other podcasting sites that you listen to. Every Wednesday, get some rice in your life. Bye. 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 Bye.